So the story goes of, of a reporter that was uh, interviewing an old guy. It was his 100th birthday. And so she's there to find out everything she can about this life of 100 years. And she asks, asks him, what are you most proud of about your long, long life? And so the old guy thought about it for a few moments. And he came back with this answer. And he says, well, I don't have an enemy in the world. And the reporter, she was just moved by the, by the answer. And she said, what, what an inspiration. What, what a beautiful thought. And to which the old guy kind of laughed. And he said, yep, I outlived every last one of them. <laughs> yep, that might be the only way we might ever get rid of some of our enemies, huh? I don't know. But let me ask you this. Can you think of someone in your life with whom you've been arguing or has made you angry in the last few days? Do you have someone or even multiple people who are right now actively engaged in making your life difficult, whether they even realize it or not? All right, let me, I'm just going to do it. Let me, let me ask for a show of hands. Based on the answers you gave to those questions, how many of you have enemies in the room? Let me see. How, how many of you have enemies in the room? Oh, my goodness. That's, you know what? For a preacher, that is really good news. Because sometimes you get up and you, you, you preach a sermon, you think it's for one person. Not today. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm on the right track. I'm telling you what. This one's for all of us. Loving our enemies. Hmm. Hey, well, let me give you just a quick recap. Some of you are new. You might not even know where we are in this journey of, of apprenticing our lives to Christ. Uh, our, our working definition is this, that a disciple of Christ is a person who is willing to give up their preconceived ideas of what life is all about, to abandon their previous way of living, immersing themselves into the way, the truth, and the life of the Master in order to be like Christ. That's his real invitation to you this morning. Come follow me, he says. Come join me in my kingdom. He challenges us to, to make it the pri biggest priority in our life, to seek first the kingdom. And I paraphrased, I don't know when the last time you paraphrased something was. It's when you have two little french fries and you've got a, a paraphrase. I'll start over. <laughs> I paraphrased Jesus' commandment here to seek first the kingdom of God this way. Above anything else, pursue God's kingdom agenda and join with his activity in your everyday traffic patterns of life as you develop the attitude and character of Christ. And in one sense, that statement right there, it's a purpose statement for your apprenticeship to Jesus. Uh, uh, you might remember I also said this, that to be his disciple, you have to be willing for Christ as master of your life to challenge every aspect of your thinking. What is right and just and fair? What are appropriate responses to life's toughest challenges and toughest people? Your, your values, your moral virtues, every single worldview floating around in that brilliant little mind of yours. You have to be willing to give it all up. You, you can't hold on to it any longer if you're going to apprentice yourself to Jesus. He's the teacher. He's the one with the right thinking. He's the one we have to be willing to experience in our lives a total reformation of our minds. And, and perhaps nowhere is this more challenging to us than in the area of what to do with those really difficult people of our lives that, that seem to just come against us. 
Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 6. We're going to reference some of what we've already seen in the video. Luke chapter 6. You see, for, for these opponents in life of ours, these enemies, Jesus offers his most radical teaching of all. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't teach us like meditative coping skills, or he doesn't offer an anger management class, or, or he doesn't give us diversity training. No, he, he goes completely against our natural way of thinking, and he calls for a transformation, a complete transformation of our hearts and our minds like nobody else. So read with me from verse 27 here in Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who listen, anybody who will listen to me, just listen up is what he's saying. Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you. And from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But, and he says it again, love your enemies. Do what is good and lend expecting nothing in return. Then, then, that's a big statement, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful just as your father also is merciful. Wow. <laughs> you talk about some radical teaching right there. I mean, for most of us, we'd probably rather our text for today on how to deal with our enemies to be more like David's prayer of frustration found in Psalm 109. I bet you were hoping this is the one I would turn to. Listen to how he prayed to God about his enemy. Let his years be few. Let someone else take his position. May his children become fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander as beggars and be driven from their ruined homes. May creditors seize his entire estate and strangers take all he has earned. Let no one be kind to him. Let no one pity his fatherless children. May all his offspring die. <laughs> May his family name be blotted out in the next generation. That's my kind of prayer right there, you know what I'm saying? Have you ever prayed something like that? I mean, that's pretty intense, right? But we've all been there. We have. Some people just really get to us, and, and it's just so easy for our old way of thinking to kick in in these situations. Because it, it seems, and we've been taught this, it seems justifiable to fight back, to defend, to get even, or offer payback. And yet, this radical rabbi from Nazareth, to whom you've determined to to bind your life to in order to master his trade, he offers up such opposite teaching that it almost seems preposterous. What did he say? What? Love your enemy? Are you kidding me? Well, let's do some apprenticing this morning, huh? Let's get in here and do some hard work. And so what we'll do is we'll take the first couple of verses from our text this morning, not David's prayer, 
but Jesus commands, and we'll use those as an outline for us, okay? Verse 27, I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And let's start with the first phrase, love your enemies. Now, you might remember from last week as we were studying the greatest commandments, one of which is to love your neighbor as yourself, that one of those tricky religion scholars was trying to back Jesus in a corner and says, okay, well, who is my neighbor? And, of course, we get the story of the Great Samaritan for that. But, but, but perhaps this morning we might need to ask the opposite question. Okay, Jesus, who is my enemy? Who is my enemy? Now, here's a, a dictionary definition that might help us get started. One that is anti- antagonistic to another. Somebody been an- antagonistic? Does somebody antagonize you in your life? A person that is hostile. Oh, I see that hand over here. Yes, I do, friend. A person hostile or opposed to a, a policy, cause, person, or group. Anyone ever get hostile or uh, oppose you? You ever experience that? Hmm? Or how about this? Just simply an opponent. Somebody on the other side. So that gets the ball rolling just a little bit to think about what an enemy might be. I mean, we've, we've, we've probably all had people in our lives from time to time that we thought they're, they're just out to get me. They've got it in for me. You ever use those, those words? And those are easily identifiable. But I would suggest that your enemy might not always be just those with whom you're in an all-out war. Here's some other examples. Of course, we can say those who attack us. Those who attack us. I mean, certainly on the spectrum of, of, of enemies, these people are the most vicious and easily identifiable as our enemies. How about these? Those who wrong us. They hurt our feelings. They they gossip about us. Some of it may even be in, in, intentional, but, but sometimes they don't even know they're doing it. They don't realize they've hurt you. How about these? Those with whom we argue. You find yourself in arguments very often? In, in the moment, perhaps that person is the enemy. You see, it's a battle of words, of right and wrong, who's right and who's wrong, often escalating as someone tries to win, right? And when you try to win an argument, clearly we have opponents, right? So therefore... That person is your enemy. Might be the person you're sitting next to right now, huh? At least sometime in the last week. How about this? Those who stand in opposition to our values and convictions, regardless of whether we've ever talked to them face-to-face. For example, if you're a Republican, you might feel as though the Democrats are your enemy. Boy, I'm struggling today. With enemy. They, yes. Man. Democrats might feel that way about Republicans, Republicans vice versa, right? For some of you, Colin Kaepernick might have triggered a movement that stirs up anger because you think they violate a value and conviction that you have. You don't even know them, and yet what they stand for, or kneel for, is so wrong to you, whether you want to admit it or not, they and anyone who dares agree with them have become an enemy to you. Now, you, you know me, I'm, I'm really not here to stir up controversy, I'm not here to pick sides on anything like that. I'm just trying to help broaden your perspective, your scope of who your enemies might be, so that you can allow Jesus to shape your thinking and shape your heart. Now, your enemy might also be somebody in your past. Maybe you're not at war with them right now, but they're in your past. Maybe you experience, your experience with them was such that you have yet to let go of those feelings of anger and bitterness. And so we'll deal with that before the morning is over as well. And yet, as we look at that list, Jesus gives us clear instructions on what our response toward these enemies should be. 
He says to love them. We know who the enemy is now. At least we're getting a better sense of it. But he says we're supposed to love them. Now remember, the, the love that Jesus speaks of here in the original Greek language is the word agape. And you re might remember, I, I lean on C.S. Lewis's definition here. Selfless love, a love that is passionately committed to the well-being of others. And so when Jesus says we're to love our enemies, he's not just saying that it's the absence of conflict. It's a commitment to their well-being. And it's rooted in this kingdom principle of the great reversal, that the first should be last and the last should be first. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that you agree with them. It doesn't mean you condone their behavior or validate their opposing views. But it is setting aside your instinct to retaliate and to defend yourself for the sake of God's love toward that person. Love your enemy. And so next he says, do what is good to those who hate you. This is impossible, Jesus. What are you, are you we, this, is, this is nuts. Nobody would say that. Because it runs in such opposition to the old man, doesn't it? But this, this part of the command is clearly rooted in agape, being passionately committed to the well-being of others, doing good. Now, similar, similarly to uh, last week when we, we talked about compassion, we talked about compassion as a dynamic of agape love. This week I want to present two more dynamics of agape love. And the first of those two dynamics is the word forbearance. Forbearance. Forbearance is withholding retaliation or demand for payment. It could also be defined as patient self-control. Long-suffering is a, is, a, is a King James way of saying it. Forbearance. And so the beginning of doing good to your enemies is simply forbearance. It's patiently withholding retaliation for the sake of love. I mean, Paul would teach us about this later in Romans 12. Do not repay evil. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it's written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, notice that forbearance is, is, is not to say that the one who has brought harm into your life will be off the hook forever. You just have to leave the vengeance to someone a whole lot more capable than you are. You see, David had the opportunity to, to retaliate against Saul. He could have taken matters into his own hands, but what did he say? 1 Samuel 24, may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But what did he do? But my hand will not touch you. You see, as we go about observing the life of Christ, apprenticing our lives to his example living, we see that Jesus himself, he demonstrates incredible long-suffering and forbearance. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. So Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Forbearance, holding back, withholding defense, not even needing to defend yourself, being patient, long-suffering. And remember, at some point, all will be reconciled, either through the cross in that enemy's life, coming to grips with the love of Christ in their own life, or maybe perhaps even in the judgment. But you're leaving that to him. But doing good is not just withholding retaliation. It goes much further. Because if we continue with Paul in Romans 12, look what he encourages us to do. But if your enemy is hungry, 
you're out of luck, bud. After what you did? No. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil. Listen, church. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. That's how we get through to our enemies. Not by shouting matches, not by winning arguments, not by retaliation and vengeance, but through goodness and kindness. Which leads us to the third part of Jesus' command here. Bless those who curse you. Bless those. Do you you realize what the word bless really means? Have you thought much about it? You see, to truly bless someone is the projection of good into the life of another. It's the projection of good into the life of another. And sometimes we sort of flippantly say, God bless you. And what that really means is that that we want to extend Christ-like blessing into a person's life. We're calling on God on behalf of that individual to support the good that we are willing into that. We want good, God, for this person's life. We're calling on you. Bless, bless you, bless you. God, bless you. It's not excusing wrong or immoral behavior. I'm not saying that. You're not asking God to ignore it. You're asking God to show them his love in spite of it. Mm. And again, he'll handle the cleansing and judging in his way and in his time. He is God, you know. <laughs> Leave the judging to him. In fact, Jesus says a bit later in this, in this passage we're reading from today, in verse 37, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. And I love this, a good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You see, this language of reciprocity is is used by Jesus all the time. It's that sowing and reaping language that he uses. When we exercise God's loving ways, God makes sure that it comes back to us. Do you hear me? When we exercise God's loving ways, he makes sure that it comes back to us. Now, now granted, it, it won't always come back from your enemies, right? But he promises it will come back in good measure to you. So forbearance, withholding retaliation, showing grace and mercy, kindness and goodness. But then there's this other part of the command, the fourth point for today. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, how do we pray for our enemies? I mean, we often think of prayer as asking God to do something good for us, or maybe something good in in, in the lives of our loved ones at least. Jesus himself even encourages us to pray with faith for positive outcomes. Look look at this from Mark 11. He says, Jesus replies to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything that you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Man, that's pretty positive, isn't it? pretty awesome and get this jesus says to use that same kind of faith-based positive outcome prayer for your enemies as well you see it wouldn't be right for me to stop reading right there because jesus also says next and whenever you stand praying all that positive prayer you were trying to offer up to the lord whether it be for yourself or for your family or for whoever whatever whenever you stand praying if you have anything against anyone forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. 
This right here, this is how we pray for our enemies, church. Forgiveness. This is the second dynamic of agape love. We just got to cover this morning. Forgiveness. And so we return once again to the Lord's Prayer, as we have multiple times through this series. In this section, he says, Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. This is a prayer he's offering, a model prayer for you to pray regularly, consistently. And he says later in this discussion about forgiveness, just a couple verses later after the prayer is over, If you forgive those who sin against you, your Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others... Your father will not forgive your sins. That's some tough language right there. And i got to be honest with you. These sort of conditional forgiveness statements, they're not uncommon in Jesus' teaching, and, and, and they've been a bit confusing. Because we've been taught about unconditional forgiveness from God, haven't we? So here's my best shot at helping us to understand what's going on right here. You see, to seek forgiveness for God for your own sins while withholding from forgiveness from others, is hypocritical. He's saying, you can't walk in true fellowship with me if you refuse to forgive others. Living with unforgiveness is living in disobedience to God. You, you might want to pull out your, your, your pen and write this one down. Living in disobedience, no. Living with unforgiveness is living in disobedience to God. That's a tough one. I get it. But he, he teaches the depth of this principle in response to one of Peter's most famous questions. You'll remember this one, Matthew 18. Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Well, I tell you, not as many as seven. Jesus replies, but 70 times seven. That's 490 for the mathematicians in the room. And so for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So here we go. Once again, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, life in the kingdom of heaven in the here and now looks like this. And so the story goes that a servant is brought in who owes the king a lot of money. At first, the king says, hey, you go sell everything you have and you pay what you owe. But the servant falls down, begs for mercy, and the king compassionately forgives the loan. But the, the, the servant, this forgiven servant, immediately goes right out and tracks down the guy who owes him just a little bit of money. You know, had to, had to cover his lunch bill last week because he forgot his credit card or something, you know? That's all he owes. And when the guy can't pay, he has, he has him thrown in prison. And so word gets back to the king, and, and he's infuriated. And listen to what he says. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You see, Jesus is saying that a primary rule in the kingdom is to forgive. Get this. It's subtle, but get it. It's to forgive as you have been forgiven. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Paul goes on to reiterate this principle in, in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. But how far should we go with forgiveness? Look at what, what, what he's saying here. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, that's our model, church. Forgive others as much as God has forgiven you through Christ. Amen. You see, here's a question you can ask yourself. How can I reflect the heart of God for me toward others? 
How can I take what God is doing in my heart and in my life? How can I, how can I ref- be a reflection, almost like a mirror, that the amount of love that God gives me, now I'm just going to turn and direct that to someone else, and I'm going to love them the same way. It's the line from the Lord's Prayer. Forgive my wrongdoing, Lord, as I am forgiving those who have wronged me. But here's a really big question. As I was thinking about this message and trying to put it together, I I kept coming back to this one question. Can we really forgive someone if they haven't asked for it? I mean, isn't that a good question? Can you forgive somebody that hasn't asked for it? And, And here's how I've come to think of it. There's a big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is letting go of bitterness and resentment and the need for repayment. But reconciliation is really only possible if repentance is is present. It doesn't mean your relationship's going to be made whole just yet. But it does mean you're letting go of what is owed to you. And you're digging up the bitterness. The the writer of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone and, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And get this, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Unforgiveness and bitterness go hand in hand. And the writer says that if it takes root in your heart, it affects not just you, but it affects other people. It says many become defiled. Your bitterness spreads throughout your home, your workplace, your classroom. Another translation calls it the the, the poison of bitterness. It poisons your heart and your soul. You know, for some of us, there's, there's unforgiveness for some truly terrible injustices in our past. I get that. But, but for the most part, by and large, for most of us, it's a series of smaller enemies over our lifetime. Little wrongs against us that, that have been the seeds of bitterness that have taken root in our life. Now, I'll tell you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's called the love chapter for a reason. In fact, I want to challenge you this week. Write it down. Pastor Rodney challenged me this week to take a day in your prayer time, your quiet time, and and I want you to slowly and carefully reflect on 1 Corinthians 13. I know you've probably done it before, but do it again this week. It, It has so much impact on what we've been talking about the last few weeks. But for this morning, I want us to just take a quick look at verses 4 through 7. And I want to see how useful these descriptors might be at helping you to love your enemy. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It'll be on the screen. First of all, verse 4, love is patient and kind. Now that's forbearance, folks. Love is patient, love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It is not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. But go back and look at that. It keeps no record of being wronged. That's the way most modern translations interpret the end of verse 5. Your, your, your version might say something a little bit different, but keeping no record of wrongs is how newer translations say it. Keeping record, folks, is like planting seeds of bitterness in your heart. But forgiveness is about digging up those seeds and those weeds that choke out God's love, that keep it from being able to flow through your life. 
Now, I get it. If you went seeking repentance from everyone who has hurt you or sinned against you in your life, it, it might seem pretty hopeless. But again, we're not necessarily talking about reconciliation here. We're talking about forgiveness. And you see, in the original Greek, the word forgiveness here actually has this connotation of letting something go, letting it go. Let it go. It's, it's, it's not approval of, of, of wrongdoing. It's not condoning it. But it's the commitment to not hold on to it, to not let the effects of it take root in our heart. And here's the lesson you cannot miss. Write this one down, too. Forgiveness is trusting God for the outcome. You've got to get this. this is, I'm telling you, this is good. It, 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 we've already mentioned leaving judgment and penalty, reconciliation for the offender in God's hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But what about your life? What about our own lives? We're trusting him for the best and the brightest outcomes as well, for us. You, you, you might remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that as his apprentice, Jesus invites us to take on his yoke. You remember that? And I described that as a double yoke, that he's in one side and, and we're in the other side, to bind ourselves to him. He's carrying the load with us. He's there at every turn with us. He's showing us how to do life with him in the kingdom. And what we've got to learn in his yoke, beyond acting with him, because that's what we're doing, he's in control and we're acting with him, it is to abandon outcomes to God. Abandon outcomes to God, accepting that we do not have within ourselves the wherewithal to make this come out right. We can't do it, whatever this might be. You see, to abandon outcomes is to give up self-sufficiency and to abide in the circle of sufficiency we find in Christ's love. Giving up self-sufficiency over to the circle of sufficiency we have in Him. And forgiveness towards your enemies is one of the ultimate practices in God-dependence. I don't have to win. I don't have to come out on top. Everything I need is found over here in my relationship with Christ. It was so powerful to me that in our daily reading plan this week, which I do hope, by the way, that all of you are still continuing to follow along with that. It's in your, in your map, so you've always got it with you to help guide you through it this year. But as we're reading through it, uh, we read through the uh, culmination of Joseph's life story. And you, you probably remember Joseph's story really well. His jealous brothers sell him off into slavery. He goes through several radical ups and downs in his life because of it. But, of course, he ends up a mighty ruler in Egypt. The family's been reunited, and, and now their father Isaac has died. And the brothers are afraid that Joseph wants to get even, wants to get back at them now that dad's out of the picture. And so they cook up this story. It's so cool. I mean, it's like, you can't believe They're always lying about something. They cook up this story that Isaac told them. Go to make sure that Joseph knows that I want him to forgive you <laughs> for all the suffering that, that you've caused. And so I pick it up here in verse 17. And then he's gotten the message from his, from his brothers about this cooked up lie about Isaac saying, hey, forgive your brothers. But look at his response. Look at this. Joseph wept. When their message came to him. His brothers also came to him. Bowed down before him and said we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Boy that's a good one isn't it? <laughs> we sure act like we're in the place of God a lot of times don't we? Joseph had every right it would seem on our, the way we look at it. These brothers were scoundrels. They had absolutely done the worst of worst to him. He's got every right. But what does he say? 
You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. My friend, can I just tell you this morning that God is in control of your outcomes, that he can take the worst assault in your life, the broken pieces of, of woundedness in your lifetime, and he can turn them into something extraordinary. Your fate, your outcome in life is not in the hands of those who would come against you. Your destiny is found in the life God wants for you. Joseph's response was to love his enemies, to comfort them, to speak kindly to them. Listen, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. Are you hearing me, church? Friend, if you're, if you're still struggling with, with enemies from your past, let it go. Don't hold on to it any longer. Join with Paul. Quit lugging it around. Quit looking in the, in the rearview rear mirror. Brothers, here's what he says. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Look what he says. But one thing I do, I forget about what lies behind. All that stuff, all that garbage, all those enemies, all those wounds, all those hurts, I choose to leave them behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. You see, the best thing you can do with your past is to leave it there. <laughs> Quit dragging it around with you. It's kind of like Pumbaa used to say on The Lion King. You remember that? You got to put your behind in your past, what he used to say. <laughs> but now look, I get it. It's easy for a preacher to stand up here and, and make such blanket statements. In our own strength, the kind of forbearance and forgiveness that I'm talking about this morning, it's not possible. What we've got to remember is that this kind of loving, rooted in selfless and sacrificial agape love, the compassion for the hurting and the disoriented that we talked about last week, and forbearance and forgiveness towards our enemies, while it is a choice to live that way, it is only enabled through the abiding love and grace of Christ in our life. I'm telling you, it's going to take a, 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 the, the transformational power of God in our hearts to bring it about. Let me say it again. The power to forbear and to forgive others comes from abiding in the forgiving and affirming love of Christ. I'm convinced this is what John was talking about. God's love is made complete in us only when it flows through us into other people's lives. And it also means that we're okay if love for our enemies is not reciprocated because of our sufficiency. All the love we need, everything we need is found as we abide in Christ's love for us. And thus, as he promised, joy and peace are made complete in us as well. Let me tell you, love, joy, and peace should be our default disposition if we are abiding in Christ. And isn't that the life you long for anyway? I mean, can I just tell you that if we truly apprentice our whole lives to Christ, this is what we can fully expect. Friend, th this is the life you were meant to live, accepting his invitation into the, into the community of love represented by the Trinity, trusting in him alone as your sole sufficiency, selflessly loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, compassionately giving to the hurting and the disoriented, even extending loving forbearance and forgiveness to your enemies, past and present. This is what it looks like to love like Jesus. The goal and ambition of our life with him. The aim of my life is to be like Christ. Can you say that with me? The aim of my life is to be like Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, there's 
one more incredible reminder of what it means to love like Jesus in the way that we've been talking about this morning. It happens at the darkest hour in his life. During the culminating experience of his mission here on earth, Jesus is sentenced to death by crucifixion. And it is this painful yet selfless act that that offers you and I the forgiveness of sins and the beginning of new life. Aren't you grateful? In the book of Luke, it says it like this. When they arrived at the place called the skull, Golgotha, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right, one on the left. Now pay close attention to this. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. Now, perhaps he's speaking specifically of the soldiers responsible for driving those spikes in his hands and his feet. Maybe he's speaking about the soldier responsible for shoving that crown of thorns on his head. Father, forgive them. Or maybe he's he's speaking about the Jews who, in audience with Pilate, screamed out, Crucify him! And Jesus replies, Father, forgive them. Or maybe... Just maybe, in an even more eternal cosmic display of love, Jesus is crying out on behalf of you and me as he is wounded for our transgressions and by his stripes we are healed. Father, forgive them. And regardless, though, of whom this plea might be offered for, it is the ultimate model for us. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Even on the cross, love wins out and he prays for his enemies. And so my question to you this morning is, have you accepted that forgiveness that he offers so freely? Have you repented for your wrongdoing? Have you experienced the loving grace of God to free you from your guilt and your shame and the debt that you owe? Because all it takes this morning is to repent, to turn from from your guilt and your shame and move towards God, to have a change of direction, living by his words placing your whole confidence in Him, believing in Him. Repent and believe. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved, it says. Commit yourself to apprenticing your life, your whole life to Christ. Answer His call this morning to be His disciple. Step this morning into the forever kingdom and start living the life you were meant to live. Boy, doesn't that sound like an offer. And if that's you, the seed of it starts in your heart. But it might manifest in a prayer that sounds something like this. Would you bow your heads with me? And think.